Hello, welcome to Talking Fit. I am Paul Rose. I'm joined as ever by Luke Morgan. And today we are joined by professional cyclist Damien Clayton. Uh, Damien, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Just two or three minutes. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, name's Damien Clayton. Recently turned professional, full-time professional cyclist uh, for Ribble Welltie Pro Cycling as of this year. And swapped professions from uh, being an architect. So now trying to become a full-time successful full-time pro cyclist. Awesome. So obviously, like you said, you, you came from being an architect, so you had a unconventional route into professional cycling. So just kind of tell us a little bit about how, how that happened, how that sure. opened up for you. Yeah, well, I, I've always been interested in anything on two wheels, really. I've never really played with footballs or anything like that. Um, when I grew up, got given a bike as, from as early as I can remember. And I got into motocross as, as, as a younger, younger kid, BMXing quite a lot. Uh, and that's where I actually know, know Luke, Luke really well from. And then growing up, I made the decision to swap to education to go to university. Mainly, I think through the pressures of modern society and parental expectations coming from private school and having so much investment behind me. Um, I was never going to make it as a as a as a motocross rider. I, I was always lacking something there, and I never found it. But I was kind of like urged to go to a to university, follow that path, and was just told quite clearly by my mum actually um, that I should be an architect and I will be an architect and I will get good money. So did that. Stopped all the motocross. I kind of parked all of that 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 to one side. Still kind of kept bit here and there in the gym but then fast forward to the end of my masters I was in London and just kind of commuting I used to hate the tube um, commuting by a, a single speed uh, bike and got involved in a office ride which was from London to Brighton it was quite a, a well-known ride to do um, I, I basically turned up with very unsuitable stuff, very naive, no, no idea what I was doing. What, what uh, did you turn up in? It was, just, it was a, it only had one gear, so it was a single gear, single gear. It was, it barely had brakes. I didn't, I, I just had normal, I just had normal running stuff on really, like running shorts, t-shirt. I had a backpack with a spare pair of clothes because no one would take my bag for me. I had a lock as well. I was carrying a lock. No, I had no no water, no food. I made sure I had like inner tube and and and, and those kind of things, uh, so I wouldn't be a hindrance that way. But I was basically flat on flat, told don't turn up, don't turn up on that bike, don't turn up on on a commuter. You know, you'll just ruin the day for all of us. And I was like, no, no, I'll be all right. Yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. And anyway, I just lied. I just said, yeah, I found a bike with loads of gears. Yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be all right. I turned up on this, and obviously got got like like. So many looks, and um, I was like, oh, you know, it'll, it'll be all right. Ended up beating everyone up every climb, obviously down every climb, and then um, raced this guy um, into Brighton itself right at the end. Well, I mean, we were basically like one and two, and it was him. It was a, it was a, a friendship that I grew out of knowing this guy Paul, who was older than me, and we kind of. <clears throat> just like hit it off. He was, from, he was from Sheffield. 
I'm from Barnsley, so kind of like two Yorkshire lads just messing around. And he, he basically just took me under his wing. And he's he had, had loads of knowledge. Like by this time, I literally had no idea what cycling was at all. I didn't know who anyone was, what anything did. Never been on a road bike from this commuter really and he was just like yeah you should get a proper bike and I was kind of going through a bit of a life change because I just split with my girlfriend of like long-term girlfriend um, so I was like yeah like but we've got a bit of spare time now so see if I can invest in in, in this uh, road cycling business basically and it, it just took off from there. So how long did you um, stick with a single speeder for before you went and you know invested in a something a bit more suitable well i actually well i actually kept the single speed until i left univert and sorry until i left london but um just to just as like an easy commuter but i think after i think it was the next week that i i ordered a, a proper bike just off the internet and naively bought like wrong we didn't invest enough in in a bike you know how you can like i'm very very impulsive so I bought one that was like, I was like, oh, I don't want to spend, I think it was like a thousand pounds. I was like, I don't want to spend over that. So I kind of like spent under it and then ended up breaking it. I didn't crash or anything, just broke it basically. It was quite heavy when I started. So yeah, I broke it. And then by that time, I'd, I'd got the, I got the bug for it. So I was on the phone like every five minutes to, to, the, to the shop being like, when's it fixed? I'm going to get it sorted, blah, blah, blah. Um, and and this guy just turned around and was like, I just think you should get an aluminium bike, to be honest, mate. Like, I don't think this is this is suitable for you. So I upgraded a little bit on on, bike, on a bike and then I had that one for quite a few years after that. And how long after that did you get into racing? A couple of months. A couple of months? <laughs> yeah, I loved it. kind of like got involved. It's, it, when, when you're in London, obviously it's so heavily populated that there's just... There's just so much going on, and the same guy got me involved, like in in, in the door into this into this team, uh, sorry, this club in London, uh, London Dynamo, just to kind of show me like how group etiquette, basically, you know, riding in a group, what what you should be doing, what you should be doing on the road, what you shouldn't be doing, and obviously picked up that quick learning curve, and I quickly kind of like. Every, still to this day like every single training session every, like whenever I'm on my own or whether I'm with other people I rate I treat it as like a race scenario so like, I'm always thinking of like all right so what would like what would happen if the finish line is 10k from now like, I'd, I'd be thinking about it like constantly as like a race situation so yeah a couple of months went past and a winter series it at the Olympic Park um, was happening and yeah the same guy Paul he was just like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take you to, to go watch you. He was literally, I'll take you to go watch your first race. Um, as like this initiation thing. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. It's a kind of closed, um, closed, they call it a crit race. Um, so it's normally a closed loop of like a mile, or a mile and a bit or so. And it's normally like, he sold it to me as like a very aggressive, there's loads of shouting, you know, like you might get thrown off. And I was like, like it just that sounds like motocross, really. You know, like when you're on the bike, you scream at people if they're in your way, or you just take them out if if they're doing your editing. So I was like, yeah, it sounds brilliant. It sounds it sounds just like motocross. So like I'm I'm up for this. Anyway, it turned up. Everyone was saying like, please thank yous and sorries to everyone, and and like you know like most 
most etiquette way of riding and I was like, I thought you said they were going to be like some shouting and a bit of abuse. Like this is a bit, this is a walking park compared to motocross. So kind of witnessed a few of those, those and then started watching it on TV. It started to kind of encroach into my um, professional life within the office. And then, yeah, Paul said there were a w- first, first round of the winter series coming up. So it's like the back end of the back end of that year. You know, like again, I'll give you a set of race wheels in exchange for doing some labour on his house and yeah I'll, I'll take you well we'll come along to your first race and we'll, we'll see what happens and I literally like it's probably one of my favourite well yeah one of my favourite races still kind of like was messing around in, in, in the group and like picked up a few things from riding within with people obviously like drafting and stuff like that and where to sit where to sit relative to the win and um kind of went I kind of like just tried, like, with riding off the front, how hard it would be, um, like, halfway through, and was kind of, like, away for a couple of minutes, and I was like, right, okay, so now I know what kind of, <coughs> excuse me, what kind of effort it would take to ride away and maybe stay away. So, we've just, like, basically, with you kind of, you get a lap board, five, sometimes you get lap boards from, like, five to go. So obviously, five laps to go, four laps to go, blah, blah, you get the bell lap, which is the last lap. And I just thought, you know what, five laps to go, I'm just going to, just whack it, see what happens. I'll come with momentum for past them all and, and see if anyone comes or see what happens. But well, went around this first time, got a big gap. Paul was just like, um, keep going, keep going. Next lap, I think he said something like, um, don't look behind you, you might have this. And then with like two or three laps to go, just like, that's it, done, it's in the bag. Um, and then obviously last lap was, was yeah, was, was done. Um, so won that race. And I think I did, I did basically did the same thing the next two races, literally the same tactics. It's like, well, if it works last time, it might work this time. So, yeah, did that. But the, the funny one was <clears throat> I went back to the same the same race. And you basically, it's, it's, you're like in categories. So I'm constantly like building my way through these categories. And um, turned up and said, if I race both races, so if I race the one is one race and then I race the other one after, well, I still get all my points for British cycling. And they just laughed at me. They were like, well, well, yeah, if, if, if that's if you score points. And I'm like, no, well, yeah, yeah, I will. If you do well in both. Yeah. I'm, I'm just like, yeah, well, I will, definitely. <laughs> uh, really big-headed. And I was like, well, also, I'm ever so sorry, but I haven't got cash for, to enter the second race. I'd already pre-entered the first race online. Like, basically, can you take it out of my winnings? <laughs> And they just looked at me, just like, who is this for? So I ended and up how getting, did that go? I ended up getting third in the first one, which really annoyed me. Because I, I knew I should have won it. And then I actually won the last one. So I won my first elite race. So I got third and first and you know, upgraded my categories. So. so at this point, how far are you into your cycling journey from your very first race to where you just finished there? Very uh, first race to winning your first elite race. Four races in. So you picked <laughs> so, it up pretty quick. Yeah, and I mean, it probably sounds better than what it is because it's quite like a, I suppose it's a smaller scene. But yeah, I kind of, I think, as you might know, Luke, like we've always, I think growing up with motocross, you kind of, you have that racing instinct, like just developed in you and you, know, you kind of harness it like with everyday life. So I think that kind of, that popped out and yeah, just got the competitive. You mean that level of competition, you, you feel like you have to, perform as well as you can in everything that you do or yeah 
That, yeah. And that and the, like the, I think what motocross taught me was a lot more than just how to ride a bike. It was more like discipline, you know, like work ethic, tactics, although there's not many tactics in, in, in motocross, but it's that awareness of like stuff can, can be going on in you know, that kind of like that race that race scenario that you can put yourself in. Yeah, I just, that was, I think that's always been in me and I let that go and then and pick that back up through, through, through road cycling. So how long was it after you started kind of racing that the idea of going pro started to look realistic or started to be batted around by people? Paul said to me first, first day, first day I met me, you'll make this, you'll, you'll make this full time if you stick with it. I just laughed and was like, oh, I don't know what you're in about. He's the only person to say, from the start, from very early on, you know, you've got this. But to make it pro was never, ever, I mean, basically, um, the Christmas just gone, maybe, where I realised maybe, you know, actually, maybe I could go full-time. I was picked up by this pro team, but obviously, like, how do you do, define a, a, a pro athlete? But I, I think, for me, going full-time at it and, and really committing to it, and I have a kind of a few local sponsors that helped me along the way. Uh, you know, I value that as a full-time pro cyclist, but I think the best thing I did was remove myself from London. As good as what it is, is it's got a, such a toxic environment. And there was like, I actually joined this team and I liked the ethos from a distance. And um, one of their, one of their taglines, and actually we have it spread on our bike as we were team bikes. It says, you ain't pro bro. And, you know, it's kind of like an antithesis to, to these pro teams and to these to the kind of very elitist attitudes you, you, can, you can come against. And I was actually in this race once, and this pro rider read it, read, like, read what it says on my bike. And he was like, actually, mate, we're all pro here apart from you. Because <laughs> I was in this breakaway with him on, and I was like, oh, I don't know what to say now. So, yeah, I kind of actually was literally in, in a bubble of, almost like with, with people surrounding me saying, you know, you're never going to make this pro. So what's the point? I was in quite a negative, it's a good question because I was in quite a negative space and surrounded by a lot of negative energy. But then to, to, to break free from that and to kind of like detach myself from that world, move back up to Yorkshire, surround myself by actual pro riders and then get better with, with the aim of just progressing through the sport, never with the aim of, you know, trying to make this pro or anything like that, it kind of almost came part and parcel of thoroughly enjoying the sport. I mean, in Yorkshire, obviously, you've got, I would personally say, a better environment to be a better road cyclist. You think of the roads and obviously you've got tractors and you've still got busy roads, but it's nothing in comparison to London and what you were racing with there, is it? No, I mean, also, being outside of that bubble, like you just said, I came across a quote the other day and it said, your vibe affects your tribe. If you flip on its head, you, you're, you could be influenced by your tribe. And if you've got a group of people around you who are almost not wanting you to grow, it's got to be quite a different, it's got to be quite a difficult situation to be in. If it goes against all of all, all of what you value of trying to better yourself, I imagine getting out of that was a pretty, a pretty comfortable choice. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've got um, one of the pro, pro cyclists, uh, Peter Sagan, he's got um, an autobiography and he's like, Big time world champion, and one of the things that he he describes is, is, is that, that network and that support team that he has around him, and how important that is. And there's a lot of sport psychology that's built within that to sit to prove how important that is is definitely 
Um, so I definitely agree with that. And you know, having family who, who really support it as well. Um, so obviously they come in the same cocoon, really. You're all kind of striving for, for the same, same goal, really. But I didn't realise that when I was in London. Um, I think London's unreal for to race. Like you could race like every single night of the week. But up here, yeah, I mean, the, the like, I'm just priv- really privileged to be to live where I am with my parents. I mean, I literally pedal two minutes and I'm on a nice country, country road. So it's just like it's just heaven, really. If you were in London and you've got that option to race every night of the week, is that is that actually a good thing, or would that would racing every night of the week ultimately be negative in terms of your, your training and your longer term goals yeah. and development yeah it's a good question really i mean it depends what type of cyclist you are i, th- I think in general racing makes you weaker because of that constant you're constantly in the red basically um and you know you never really proper let anybody recovery never really getting those base miles in you know like your training is like your base miles and then you kind of do the, do your over threshold your vo2 max stuff um but if you're training one like if you're training your VO2 max too much, then you're never going to be able to go above it, really. So you need to let your your body rest, and it depends what type of type of rider you are. There's some there's some riders will will be really suffering in the current situation that they need racing to to remain focused, to remain fit, and and they don't actually train. They just they've probably been doing it that long. They rely on the racing for those efforts. And, and it's almost like they, they're feeling unable to push themselves like to breaking point in, in training whereas in racing they might be able to so I think it's a hindrance more than anything else for me personally I can train just as hard as I can race really and what does uh, like your average week of training look like? Uh, now it's stepped up to like it's around like 20 hours a week pure pure cycling um, it depends at the moment obviously with the current situation I can, we've kind of like gone back to like endurance and endure a bit like building my base up again with a few kind of tempo efforts with the idea that it would increase my functional threshold power uh, i know that probably just they're just words yeah that's it's around about a 20 hour week which is purely bike but then um start to incorporate like whenever i've got like a, a, a rest day i kind of do like an hour of call i do like I do like an hour and a half of just bodily stretches and stuff like that every day, more or less. Kind of got your activators free. Um, I do a bit of just like just chilling out, almost kind of yoga-esque as I get in. And then I do like an evening stretch just, just before bed as well. But yeah, it's around, at the moment, it's around like anything between yeah, 15 to 25 hours really like in that ballpark. And how far would you say that stepped up just in the past 12 months? What would you have been doing back then? It's not just it's not just stepped up that much to be honest, because <laughs> as weird as that sounds, actually the the biggest year I've ever had was the first year that I started riding, first full year that I, I rode. Um I did over a thousand one thousand one hundred hours whilst still having a nine to five job. And it was only until I got kind of like proper structure and a proper coach, which I never seeked for, I never set out to having a coach. Um, never, never really saw that benefit of it until it, it, he approached me, basically. So I think now, going full time, I'm, I'm a lot. The difference is the recovery. You know, like I spend a lot less time on my feet and kind of just, just like, like, it literally, is, you do your effort on your bike, 
and then that's it. You don't want to do anything else. Um, so you become you become a bit la- lazy. So it's like that kind of almost counterintuitive to, to how you want to live your life a little bit. How would you say your like the structure of your training has changed in that time? Presumably, when you first started training, would have been pretty much just go out and ride and mm. see what happens. Whereas now, I imagine it's much more one day you'll be focusing on like the FTP and the next day you'll be focusing on the tempo another day you'll be focusing on the endurance and the longer stuff that's right yeah um oh yeah it's, it's, it's changed massively like when when i first started out all i wanted to do was ride my bike and then i just raced random people commuting home or like <laughs> and um well i got into i got involved in a in, a, in another club regents park Rulers. And they had quite kind of structure. They were just like 45 minutes in the morning. We'd meet at half five in the morning, obviously before traffic. And it, this thing was basically, if anyone who knows it, it's Regent's Park in, in London. It's basically like an out, outdoor velodrome. It's unreal. Um, it's like five, almost like a 5K lap the road park, around a road park of London. And it's shut off to traffic early in the morning. So the club obviously was, was, hev- was heavily involved within that management um, so we could almost get a 45 minute window where it's effectively traffic free. Um, so we'd just absolutely just kill each other. Like I made one of my best friends throw up twice, you know, just like really just riding each other into the ground. And then we'd just ride around in circles after go get a coffee, ride more circles, go to work, ride more circles in the evening, maybe a few sprints and then go home and then, like, I'd just do it for the for the love of it. And every weekend, it'd be, like, a big ride if I wasn't racing. Um, like, it, I'd, I'd always do a 100-mile ride at least. And I'd end up doing a 100-mile a day almost because of the split session. And get, like, looking back, I was actually talking to my friend the other day, looking back at it, like, we must have been doing our body so much harm waking up that early. You know, we've got to get up at, like, four to five every morning. But now... It, yeah, it's just like I have training peaks. Um, I literally, like today, I w- I've just done a four hours um, endurance ride. I wasn't allowed to go above. I have like a range of heart rate I was supposed to sit at and wasn't allowed to go above a certain power. Purely just to keep it super easy. And, you know, not, not have that residual fatigue in your legs. So like if I see into tomorrow, which is going to which is gonna be a split day and there'll be a, like some harder efforts. Um, so it's always like planning a couple of weeks in advance and then I have a nutritionist now. So he he's telling me what to do. He's basically telling me what to do pre, during and after. And so for me, I think I thrive through structure and it's just someone gives me those baselines and I'll do everything I can to tick that box. So I think that's what's, that's really, it's really working for me at the moment. I think. So open seems to be, it's not that the volume's increased. It's all a strategy. Everything is now meaningful. Everything has a purpose. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's no kind of like wasted. There's no wasted days. I think since I've had my coach, he just laughs and he's just like, you know, you, you never missed a session in like due, that's due to like health or you know like general life getting in the way or anything like that. I've literally never missed a session. I've ticked every single box, made sure I do every single effort as hard or as perfectly as I can um, I get annoyed if in training peaks he sets what I'm supposed to do and I get really annoyed if it's not green at the end of like the ride 
and that could be like you rode too much or you know like your certain effort wasn't hard enough or whatever like that but like 98 percent of the time it's green so that's what, I, that's what i'm trying to strive for what about rest days how often do you have a day where you just don't get on the bike is that weekly or is it kind of more or less than that you might have like a couple of rest days a week but they're always like active rest days so i've got one saturday um and they'll we're always like incorporating something so my saturday one is me and my nutritionist are trying a third model of fasting uh so it's kind of like this sleep low uh, model where i'm doing a hard effort at night i just have protein after that but not really eating much going straight to bed not eating in the morning doing the active recovery and then eating after that so it's just trying to like incorporate something else and i always have like a I always do, I'm doing a bit of core now to be able to fill that day because you kind of feel, it's funny because you're either training or you're trying to fill that void with something. And for me, filling that void is just eating. So that's my Achilles heel really. Yeah, I have like a, I have like a couple, a couple a week. I, I rarely have a, have a day where it's just complete rest. Um, it might be towards like the end of a big block. So it might be like, when you periodize your training, it might be like, I might have a couple towards the end of like a, a month worth of training. I did have a week recently where it was an actual proper rest week. Um, I think I had three, maybe three days off, the, three or four days off the bike. But that was, that's, that's really rare, but that was kind of like my body reset to be able to go into some endurance during this, this period and, you know, not, not burn out essentially. And how are you? How are you communicating with the team right now? I saw social media doing you using Zwift quite a lot. You seem to be quite a big fan of that. Oh. How are you working with a team now? So obviously you can't just have months away from each other because then going back into you know all the synergy within the team is going to be a bit unbalanced, surely. Yeah, I, I chat chat to most of them. You know, just on social media most days. Chat to my boss kind of like quite a lot. Uh, but we have every, so starting the week, every single Monday morning, we have a Zoom chat, um, which is coupled with riding on Zwift. So you can ride with them if you want, or you can just you can just um, join the Zoom chat with a coffee. It doesn't really matter, you know, as long as we're all engaging. So that's nice to to just to just catch up with everyone at the same time. And then during the week, yeah. I, like you said, I'm really enjoying Zwift. So I might just pick one day or a couple of days and just message the group. We use Facebook Messenger really and we use that like every single day pretty much messaging here and there. Um, so I might do the same thing but just with one person just, just chatting. If it's just like an endurance, easier ride, then I'll be chatting to them through their headphones. And then every Friday evening we have like um, our team, like a training training session and it's open to the public so that's always like good to catch up and, and that creates like quite a lot of chat around that and then we have like once every month we have like a really big ride on Zwift so again it's just that kind of video chatting through social media and and, and Zwift to like virtually ride with, with your teammates really. So Paul and I were discussing earlier, what are your plans moving forwards? I know, I know we've kind of touched upon it, but what are your plans moving forward? I know you mentioned Tour de Yorkshire. Yep. 
how how's that sort of set it up this year is it going to happen or do you know anything more than we do maybe um, i think my my overall plan is to really push this um yeah my overall plan is to push this sport far as i can physically and mentally for me until i get to a point where i'm just a not improving or b not enjoying it or c yeah a i'm not improving or i'm not enjoying it I really enjoy the sport and I really enjoy what I do. So once once that enjoyment stops for me, I'll, I'll stop. Now, hopefully that means that obviously I keep on improving and I'm, and I'm able to compete at higher and higher levels. But that did mean this year I was supposed to do a tour of Yorkshire and tour of Britain. Um, so they were probably going to be my two big, big races to aim for, bookended either side of the the season. I know that Tour of Britain is officially postponed until next year. That came out I think last week. I'm not actually I don't actually know if Tour of Yorkshire has been cancelled but I assume it has because it was supposed to be in like May time. So it's not like on. I think being realistic I don't think we're going to have any racing this year. That's what I'm, I've prepared myself for and I think as athletes and as a cyclist, I think we're so good at giving ourselves like false promise and like fake targets. So like, when this pandemic happened, it was like, oh, such and such will still be happening. Or, you know, we've only got a couple of weeks. So if I just do like some hard efforts, I'll just, be, I'll be fine. I'll just do some hard efforts and then I'll be, I'll be fit for whenever racing kicks off again. And then obviously we get, again, on the lockdown and then it's, it's a bit like, oh, well, I'll do a bit, a few of it, like virtual races and, and then, you know, of Yorkshire will definitely still be on like, how can they postpone that or it's just getting more realistic that I think that it, for me this year is is written off in terms of competition but it has real springboard for me to catch up even more um, you know if, I, if I'm more determined than my peers if I'm out training them and if I'm out if I'm more determined in everything else that makes me a better cyclist Theoretically, I should come back to the sport even stronger and, and even better than where I left it. Now, obviously, if I'm going to do that without cracking or without it being unhealthy, then that'd be perfect. But I think, yeah, I think essentially I just want to see how far I could push it because I felt like within, I always let myself down with motocross and I never kind of fulfilled something. So there's always kind of like a bit of a gap there. I left there. I don't know what that was, and I can't really answer that. But I think this is ticking, ticking boxes that you know, like I'm enjoying at the moment, and I enjoy the possibilities of what you like, what anyone could can push their body to achieve, mentally and physically. I think you know, once you've got that, once you've got your the right mindset, um, you'll know. I think one thing that chain chain well, there's always in my mind is this poem that uh, Doug Henry motocross rider again gives, gives me he was a poet yeah sorry he, he you know how um, there we, we have like DVDs of um, you know there's like great outdoors and stuff like that yep um, I think that it was a Fox motocross DVD a lot of bad things happened happened to him I think he got paralysed twice and his wife got cancer and I think their house burnt down or something. And he explains all of this in a real kind of like calm, very well ordered like manner, basically. And he reads this poem. And one thing that's massive, actually, when I was a little kid, I was, I was a little shit, if I'm allowed to say that. 
sometimes, you know, I used to push the boundaries massively. My dad actually made me write this poem out and stick it on the back of my door. And he sometimes and he put a lock on the outside of my door. And some some mornings he he wouldn't let me leave my bedroom if I didn't read this poem out loud. So I actually love my dad. It was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant for doing it. But one thing that stands out in it for me was the fact that he says that life is life is ninety percent. No, sorry, I always get it wrong. I always say it the wrong way. You didn't read it enough times. Yeah, no. Life is ten percent what happens to you, ninety percent how you react to it. And it was all about like attitude and attitude is everything. Um so I think that if you you know, if you approach any situation, any given situation with the right attitude, you know, I think you can you can pretty much over overcome anything. And I think that's something that I'm trying to really harness at the moment, you know, and be grateful for what we do have rather than what we don't have right now. I guess as a cyclist, not a huge amount training wise really changes for you, like the team side of things yeah. and kind of tactics and, and stuff like yeah. that. Um, obviously, you can't do, but you can still get out and ride. And like you say, you can still do all your core stuff and, and that at home. It's not like you, you're reliant on, on gyms or anything like that. You can still do that's right yeah um i think the first few weeks was was quite funny because i was like well, what's it what's the whole stress about this is really easy like you know like and, and i think every cyclist has every every pro cyclist has, has realized that actually as a pro athlete we we, so, we socially distance and we socially sorry we socially isolate anyway in our day-to-day in our day-to-day activities so yeah you're right like not not much has changed like i don't a little bit sad to say that I don't really have a social life and I don't want a social life. I have found it it could affect, you know, like my training routine. Sometimes I've been out and being like, bloody hell, it's like half nine. I'm normally stretched, bathed and in bed by now. Like, you know, I better go. So, you know, I don't want, as sad as it sounds, I'm really content with the almost, and I'm actually quite happy within this social isolation the only thing that does affect me is obviously I do I do like to ride with people from time to time, um, and it's just a general attitude and you know the almost the negativity from from the media that, that really kind of gets to me. I kind of just don't watch the news <laughs> unless it's positive, but it never really is. Yeah, that's two of us and probably three of us. I can't imagine Paul listening to the news much either. Mm-hmm. And this is one can we go back to work? Exactly, <laughs> same thing. Yeah. But you're, you're saying that, you're saying, I don't know if it sounds sad if I haven't got much of a social life, but something's always got to give, hasn't it, when you're trying to pursue what you're trying to pursue. So if that means that actually having a social social life like the average 27, 28-year-old is, that's not going to be beneficial to you. Exactly. It's not priority. It's not going to propel you forward as a cyclist. So, yeah, it might sound sad to somebody who does prioritize socializing with everybody but i think the people who are serious about what they want to achieve we're all they totally understand that and at the end of the day it doesn't matter if they don't understand it does it yeah and i guess if if you really wanted a social life you would have stayed in london um, exactly yeah like you don't move to yorkshire for it's it's like nightlife do you do you go to london for that yeah, I feel like I've ticked all those boxes. Like when I was in Manchester, I was actually an event manager. So I run my own night out. Um, yes, I feel like I've done, I feel really old in, 
and wise in, in, in those respects. But yeah, you're, like, you're right, Luke. Like, I pretty much have put my life on pause. Like, the, gen, the, the, normal, the normal way of living your life, you know, meet someone, settle down, kids, marriage, whatever. Kind of put, put that on pause and, and, and yeah, trying to pursue this as, as, as much as I can. But yeah, that I kind of I did feel myself within London starting to resent a lot of things like going out and stuff like that. Like I didn't even go to my leaving drinks at my old place because I just didn't didn't want, didn't didn't really like them as like they were colleagues, they weren't friends. So, you know, I didn't and I don't I don't drink anymore. I think I think it's like yeah, nearly nearly a year and a half where I haven't had a alcoholic drinks so, and stuff like that really. It's funny, listening to this is starting to make me realise why when I was 13 and you were probably 13 or 14, you were such a tricky rider to race against. You know, actually, I've <laughs> never... The discipline and the structure you like having in your life. Yeah, I never. I don't think I've ever told you this and I don't know, I will obviously, I would have never told you at the time, but there was one time at King's Lynn where um, I think we were on the... I think we were on um, Big Wheel 85s. I think Ryan was off winning... Somewhere um, a lap and a half ahead. Yeah. And you'd got a way better start than me. And I was coming up behind you. And I'm pretty sure you held me off, like, until basically you, you beat me. And I, and I didn't, I couldn't find a way past you. And I don't know, for some reason, I was like, well, obviously, like, I just felt like the need, like, I was going quicker because I caught you. And I, was, and I was like, well, I have to be able to pass him here. And, and, and I basically, basically, you beat me in this race. And I, and I threw my bike at my dad. And I went back to our caravan and I literally just cried. Like, I just, I, purely over the fact that I couldn't get past. It could have been you or it could be anyone else, really. Yeah. But I was so frustrated that I couldn't get past someone. And at this time, it was you. I literally just, yeah, just cried. And I used to beat myself up so much that I think that that was a little bit of a hindrance on my, on my performance back then. You know, I've learned now that I read a lot of sport. I try to read more sports psychology, and I think that that's more of a it's an untapped tool. You know, like your mindset is such a big part of, of your performance of, of of the end of the end of thing. So you know, once you've got your head working right, then you know, like you you almost you're well at like you're almost halfway there. You know, like now I if if I don't do if I don't if I don't do what I set set out to do within the race. I don't beat myself up about it, well, I do, <laughs> but I'm more like, I'm more, I'm more, I analyze it more and I'm all like, okay, so that didn't happen, but why? And then what, what am I going to do going, going forward to make sure that, that didn't happen? And having more, being very specific pre-race with my DS and my team and being like, right, okay, you know, I'm, guys, I'm going to save myself for 130k of the race, and I know 140k I'm just going to go. I'm going to go as hard as I can, full gas at that point, and I'm going to find my point to try and win that race at that point. And then if that doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen on the day, then it doesn't happen. You know, I'll then fall back. I'll basically that's that's my race done, and hopefully the team can capitalise on something else. And I think that one thing that I've learned is when, when I think a society in general, when we set out set a goal out. And if we actually achieve that goal and we do and we tick that box, I don't think I don't think we spend enough time telling ourselves well done, you know, like being able to reflect on that in the time. So I remember when I 
won a certain race. So I was like just stood on the podium being like, right, okay, so what's the next race? Like, what, what is next? Um, so actually stepping back from achieving something, I think is that as important as, as, that, as striving to do it as well. Almost being present in that moment, appreciate the moment and then progress. Is that, is that what you're saying here? Or? Oh, massively, yeah. Like, I still don't think it's sunk in what I achieved the back end of last year. You know, like I went over to France, um, went over to Europe, France, first race, won my first UCI race. I raced with people who, who will never win a UCI race, UCI rank race. And and it was that race, actually, that I was like, bloody hell, I've got a race in two days' time. Like, can't wait to do that. You know, like, I'll, hopefully I'll win that as well. And actually, we, yeah, like, <clears throat> looking back, like, I won, like, a, what was it? Like, it was, like a, it was something ridiculous, like a 600-kilogram solid marble table. Weird, weird prize, I know. You um, won that? Yeah. Where is it? Is it a, is it a bike stand now? Still in France, mate. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't, can't get it. And I, I was like, well, we can't, we can't take that one. Is it still um, yours? Did you sell it? I think so, yeah. I think, I think they basically said, if you can come get it, then come get it. These two guys <laughs> were like, these two guys were like, we made this out of, like, with our own hands, and I got a picture and everything. Like, yeah, r- random prize. But yeah, just, Really, ref- like, really reflecting on what I achieved there was something that I didn't do. It was literally just like, all right, okay, cool. Two pictures on Instagram, move on. Maybe, maybe at the time you felt like what you wanted was for everybody to see how well you've done. Maybe, yeah. And I think I'm, I think, I think I'm constantly on that, constantly on that journey of acceptance uh, within the sport. It's so elitist um, at the higher level. I love cycling for the freedom that it gives you. Yeah, the freedom of the bike, being able to literally go, go, well, obviously within your own capabilities, wherever you want. And the second thing is the fact that when you're on a social ride, you know, it's, it's just like, I try and describe it every time to people. It's this kind of like perfect equalizer. You know, you could be sat next to, if it's a, if it's a total social ride, you could be sat next to, I don't know, a CEO of Rafa or some high-flying whatever on a spend, spending all his money on his bike. And you, you could be there, five-year-old kit, you know, like really old bike. And you're on the same playing plane field. Like, you know, like you, you talk about the same thing, you know, it, it gives you, it's, it's that tool to be able to access almost like like higher or lower lower people in society. And it's that, that non-hierarchical um, structure that I, I like. It just flattens everything. So you kind of, you're all equal. But once you get higher in the sport and essentially at the top of national racing, it's it's the complete opposite. It's so elitist. It's like, I still have people that won't speak to me, like won't say hello. I had this one guy, I won't mention names, but it took him six months I went on the same ride with the same ride every single week and because he's been like raced here, there and everywhere um, and I'd put him away every single time. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd be able to ride away from him. So I was just like, he, he was almost like he, he was pissed off that I, I was stronger than him. And you know, it was only actually when I went to Belgium and started doing all like some stuff over there that a lot more people started to acknowledge me as a rider really. You know, not just this guy who's just because I'm not obviously like you said Paul at the start I'm not come through the conventional routes and that kind of it, it, it a raises a few like alarm bells like where's this where's this person come from but also it kind of gets people's back up because you, you're not you're not a known person 
I've kind of I'm really lucky that I have a few riders locally that saw straight through that and you know like befriended me straight away when I came to to Yorkshire and so I'm grateful to have that special network around me. Did you feel like it's perhaps a bit of a, a kind of a boys club at the top then where you've got these guys who've perhaps been racing together since they were teenagers and stuff and then you've come along as kind of a new kid on the block and they're just touch their dreams in two and a half years. <laughs> yeah definitely it's, it's just it's hard for acceptance like I was talking to one guy I was talking about talking about how he got third in this one like non he, he, he didn't he got third all right well done mate and then he was like then he started talking about that French race he was like oh, super hard race that like anyone who does well there is like it's unreal I was like yeah I won it and he was like what and he could just tell that like, his whole demeanour then just changed to being like alright oh, I guess you know unfortunately some people won't they, they accept you on your palmares um, not on you as a person you know like, you know, like I'm so e- like, I'm so easy going and I'm so like, want, like everyone who I meet through a sidekick I want to learn I'm, I'm just ears all the time like I actually I went on a photo shoot with Rafa to Italy and um, I was naive. They were like, oh, you know, there's going to be this guy called, you're going to be on the shoot with a couple of other girls and this guy called Michael Barry. I'm like, oh, Michael, why? Yeah, all right. Sounds like all right, Mr. Bean or whatever, you know. I'm just like, a, a no one. I was, I was so, so naive. Turned up, we started chatting to him um, and I was rooming with him and everything like that. It, it turns out that he was... Um, Lance Armstrong's teammate, and then he, he actually testified against him in the end, and yeah, he rode for team, raced for Team Sky as well to, to the to the highest level that you can you can imagine, and then he quit professionally in like 2012, and I've and I remember I remember riding with him, and he and he just started laughing. He was like, "Oh, you know, you 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 young kids, new kids to this sport, you don't want to listen." I was like, "Mate, I've literally got my notepad out. Like, I want to learn everything. Like, you know, I'm such a sponge. Of, like, just talk to me." And the stories he, used to, he, he comes out with, I mean, he still messages me to this day, asking me how stuff's going, how how I'm going, and how stuff's progressing and stuff like that. So you do meet those like unreal personalities that really affect really affect you, your outlook on life, really. And he was just an amazing soul to, to, to get to know, really. What is your ultimate career goal from, from cycling? Have you got one? This is a bit... Yeah, I do. This has changed... Well, it's changed recently. Because of the current situation, I live with my parents... Um, I rely, like, rely off my parents. Recently um, went vegan... Um, so mum, my mum is tends to cook and do the shopping and stuff. Um, so put added pressure on, on her because she doesn't really know sometimes like what, what what I'd like. So I'm asking, I'm asking a lot of them, you know, like living in their house. Although we get along so like so well, and my dad's my best friend. Obviously working with him and stuff like that. He literally gave me gave me his garage and said, look, whatever you whatever you need in there, like just let me know. Like I'd put all your bike stuff in there, basically. Like, TVs, anything, just, just let me know what you want. Like, obviously, uh, nutrition, mentally backing me up, financially backing me up, physically backing me up with, 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 a, with a roof over my head because I literally have no money and don't have any savings, so I couldn't be able to afford to be on my own. I, 
I realise and admire how much they are, they're not giving up, but they're giving me in a way. So what I eventually want to achieve is this like sense, like a sense from them that they're really, really proud of what I've achieved. I want to, I want to go as far as far as possible to then see, you know, like their acceptance and their like almost like thoroughly proud of what I've just achieved. You know, I don't, I don't really crave uh, a win here, there, here or whatever. I just want to be able to give back to my parents and, and give them almost like a social outlet to be able to come to these races and then to finish the race and be like, you know, like see pure elation and joy on their face. Now they might, they might say that, you know, they're proud of me now or whatever like that. They're proud of me doing what I'm doing, but I just want to take it to as high a level as possible for, for them to turn around and be like, you know, like, bloody hell, you know, actually breathtaking and, you know, like really make them as proud of parents as, as, I, can, as I can possibly possibly do. And it was quite funny that I did have one of those moments. Um, my mum was always, is, she's quite she's quite negative, she's quite down to earth. But she's always the one that knocks me down, basically. Doesn't knock me down, but she's realistic. So she once said, like, can I come to your race? I was like, yeah, yeah, no worries. Told her to literally just wear everything. She gets rain out, she gets really cold. And I basically was like, shit, like, what have I just done? I have to win this race now. And anyway, I ended up winning. And before I crossed the line, I pointed to my mom, who like, she was like 50 meters, or a couple of meters in front of the line. I just pointed to her and I was like, you know, this is for you, mom. So I want those kind of moments to, to kind of like to carry on basically um, into the future. Now that might be like, it might be being in being in the breakaway in Toddy Yorkshire, my mum and dad being able to film it like on, on TV and show all their friends. Or it might be like I might win a race locally. I don't know. But I just want to make my my, my sole aim now is to give back as much as I can to them through uh, my performance. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's cool. Seems like a pretty good place to, to wrap things up yeah, as well. I'll say so. Cool. Yeah. So, Damien, thank you very much for coming on. No, um, cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Where can people go to find out more about you in terms of social media, websites, oh. that kind of stuff? Yeah, Instagram, really. Instagram is Damien Reese Clayton. I put most of my stuff on there. I've recently gone back on Twitter as well. So, just following my team, Ribble Well Type Pro Cycling. Uh, we've got a website. Uh, we have a Instagram as well. They pretty much follow, follow most of my stuff on there. So, yeah, probably my Instagram. Luke, same question. Yeah, so um, on Facebook and Instagram. So, Instagram, Zen underscore anatomy. Facebook is Zen Anatomy Sports Therapy. And then just the other one. And website is www. As a website start, zenanatomy.co.uk. So, all things are kept updated pretty frequently. I'm at Paul Rose PT on Facebook and Instagram and paulrosept.com. Thanks very much for joining us and we will see you next time. <laughs>